National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about national security challenges and opportunities. Quick note before we get going, today's June 7th, uh, 2023. Uh, a couple of uh, interesting uh, historical footnotes uh, if we go back to World War II. Uh, the Battle of Midway occurred between June 4th and June 7th in 1942. as was a turning point of the war in the Pacific. For those of you who are history buffs, that's a good thing to, to remember. And then yesterday, of course, was D-Day, the anniversary of D-Day. We commemorate the, the landing of the Allies at Normandy and the eventual freeing of the European continent from the Nazis. So for today, uh, we're going to talk about Sudan. And if you've been following the news out of Sudan the past couple of months, you know there's a serious civil war happening in that nation. Perhaps a million people, maybe more, have fled the country, and there are more who are internally displaced. We're going to take a deep dive into Sudan today to learn about conditions that led to the strife, what has happened since fighting erupted, and finally we'll consider some likely scenarios for how this conflict might end. With us to discuss the situation in Sudan is Professor Christopher Townsell. Professor Townsell is an historian of modern Sudan, with special focus on race and religion as political technologies. His first book, Chosen Peoples, Christianity and Political Imagination in South Sudan, was published by Duke University Press in 2021 and was nominated for multiple awards. His second book, Bounds of Blackness, African Americans, Sudan, and the Politics of Solidarity, is under contract with Cornell University Press. He'll be expanding on his work on the Tuskegee Institute's cotton cultivation work in early 20th century Sudan. Bounds of Blackness aims to chart a new intellectual history of black America's relationship with Africa from colonialism to the 21st century. Bounds of Blackness will be the first Africa-focused monograph to be included in Cornell University Press's The United States in the World series. Professor Townsell's scholarly articles have appeared in peer-reviewed journals, including the Journal of Religious History, the Journal of African American History, Journal of Eastern African Studies, the Journal of Africana Religions, and Social Sciences and Missions. In addition to his historical research, Professor Townsell also provides commentary on current events in Sudan and South Sudan. His research support comes from institutions and organizations, including the Institute for Citizens and Scholars, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, the Social Science Research Council, the Council of Overseas American Research Centers, and the Doris G. Quinn Foundation. Professor Christopher Townsell currently serves as the Interim Director of the African Studies Program and an affiliate faculty member of the Comparative Religion Program at the University of Washington in Seattle. Professor Christopher Townsell, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for that um, very humbling introduction. Um, I, it is a pleasure to be here. And um, I, I just want to say I appreciate your World War II um, re references. Um, I think in addition to people needing to know about the Battle of Midway, um, for you World War II buffs listening out there, um, I encourage you to look up the importance of the Sudan in World War II, which in a very roundabout way actually connects um, in some sense to what, will, what we will be talking about today. 
Uh, I, I was a history major in my undergrad at the U.S. Naval Academy. It's always great to have a fellow historian uh, on the show. Uh, we, we take a different perspective on things that are happening in the modern day. We always can connect it back to the things that have happened in the past that are influencing events of today. Uh, Professor Thompson, I'd like to take an iterative approach with you this morning. Uh, I want to start with some background on Sudan so people understand a little bit more about that, uh, the history of the, of the place. Uh, and then we'll advance from there. So can you tell us a bit about Sudan, about the people who live in the country, about the cultures that exist in Sudan, maybe the geography as well? Let's get a kind of a better understanding of Sudan before we start discussing the civil war. Absolutely. Um, so the first place that I always like to begin is with maps, right? Um, maps are not just important for you to learn about in third grade, they always have an impact and I believe help us to um, really orient ourselves to why a certain place is important. So the Sudan is in East Africa, but it's really at the fulcrum of several regions, right? Um, some people position it within North Africa, the Horn of Africa, Central Africa, right? Um, it borders Egypt and Libya to the north, um, Ethiopia and Eritrea to uh, the east, to the south it borders South Sudan, um, and to the west it borders the uh, Central African Republic and Chad. Um, and put simply, um, it is where the White Nile and the Blue Nile merge, right? Right there um, in Khartoum in the capital. Exactly. Right. Now, it's a huge geographic country, um, but the population is, and I'll use airbrush quotes here, only about 45 million people. So actually fewer people live in the Sudan than, say, the state of California. Right. Um, it is mostly covered by the Sahara. Right. And so most of the population lives near the Nile. Right. Um it is it has a very long history of both islam religion sorry islam christianity and to a lesser extent um judaism as well right um and so um it's been independent since 1956 um and yeah so um th that's a kind of overview of the country so i i think uh, it's safe to say that if you look at a map of sudan uh, the you mentioned the majority of the population lives along the Nile there. That, th there has never been a truer case to say that water is life. And in the middle of that desert, the Nile River, both the Blue Nile and the White Nile, where they come together there in Khartoum and then flow north to, to Egypt, there would be nobody living in, in Sudan <laughs> if it wasn't for the, for the importance of the Nile. And that actually impacts a lot of the things that are happening uh, on the periphery of Sudan as well, both with their neighbors to the north with Egypt and their neighbors to the south with Ethiopia. And we'll talk, I think, a little bit more about that uh, soon. Uh, can you, being a historian, uh, can you comment a little bit about the influence of the British Empire uh, on Sudan going back uh, a century ago? More than a century. Absolutely. A century and a half. Yeah. So Sudan occupies a really kind of unique um, place within the history of the British Empire. Um, it comes under the control of the Union Jack in 1899 um, after a very famous war um, against the um, Islamic Mahdi estate, um, which kind of 
gained worldwide um, notoriety, if you will, um, in the 1880s. Um, so the Sudan was co-jointly ruled with Egypt um, from 1899 until 1956, right? And the fact that it was co-jointly ruled with this other African country made it really unique, right? Um, in terms of kind of why Sudan was important within a British imperial standpoint, um, it was not only important for its cotton, right, um, which is still very highly prized today, right, um, but also because the Suez Canal, right, hundreds of miles to the north, um, connecting the Red Sea and the Mediterranean Sea, Sudan has a long coastline with the Red Sea. And so it remains or it was strategically important, right, in kind of the first half of the 20th century and remains important today, right? Um, the Controlling the Suez Canal from a British perspective was very important, right, because it was the most expeditious um, trade route between the European mainland and the Indian subcontinent, right? India being the quote-unquote crown jewel um, of the empire. But it would have been useless to control the Suez Canal if the British had not established hegemony in the entire Red Sea, right? Um, and so in this way, Sudan was very important. But it was also important culturally, right? Um, when the British conquered the Sudan, there is this kind of imagined global ideological struggle between Christianity and Islam. And the British Empire saw itself as kind of spreading the light, right, of the Christian gospel throughout the world. And the Sudan, you know, I often tell my students was considered a kind of important piece on this global chessboard, right, where for those within kind of the halls of power in the UK, um, who saw kind of Christianity and Islam um, being tightly contested in Africa, um, the Sudan was very important as a kind of potential sphere to halt the spread of Islam further south into Central Africa. So it was important economically because of its cotton. It was important strategically because of its location on the Red Sea coast. And it was important from a kind of, um, kind of moral philosophical perspective because it was seen as a place where the cross could be planted. Those are those are all great points. So I suspect many people uh, listening to our show have heard of Darfur, a region in western Sudan. Uh, can you explain what caused the conflict in Darfur? Uh, maybe give us a, a sense of where that conflict uh, sits today. Sure. So Darfur is a huge region in the west of Sudan, um, and it borders Chad and Libya to the west. Um Many of you may be familiar with the Save Darfur movement, right, which occurred um, about 20 years ago. Um, and that is because there was a mass humanitarian crisis there, right? Um, to make a very long story short, um, during both the colonial period um, and during the period of Sudanese independence that began in 1956, Darfur had always occupied the margins of power. So Sudanese state power has always been centered around the confluence of the blue and white, not Niles, but Darfur is hundreds of miles away, right? Um, and so 
from a central government perspective, it always represented this kind of marginal region, right? Um, and so there were forcible attempts that the government took to kind of assert control um, over Darfur and people in Darfur were not having that because they did not have a very intimate connection with the central state. Um, and so in the early 2000s, um, an insurgency occurred um, within Darfur, and it was ruthlessly suppressed by then Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir. Um, and he used um, kind of mobile armed groups that collectively were known as the Janjaweed. And so this was essentially a government affiliated force that carried out massive atrocities, right? The worst of the worst, um, rapes, ethnic cleansing, burning entire homes, um, starvation, disease, right? Slavery, right? And so um, the crisis in Darfur was in some ways the first massive humanitarian crisis of the 21st century. Um, and um, because Colin Powell named the crisis in Darfur a genocide, it technically goes down kind of geopolitically as the 21st century's first internationally recognized genocide, right? Um, so in terms of where the conflict stands right now, um, that's something that in some ways connects to what we'll talk about um, later in the discussion, because one of the main um, antagonists, protagonists um, in the current dispute in the Sudan um, has kind of deep roots going on in Darfur. Um, but that's just to say that um, Darfur is still kind of one of those regions that, you know, um, is still not very peaceful. Yeah. And the current situation um, has not made that any better. Yeah. Uh, and then there's also uh, the new nation, uh, relatively new, of South Sudan, which broke away from Sudan in 2011. Uh, what can you tell us about how South Sudan came to be? And the impact of separating South Sudan from Sudan on the economics, politics, and even the security of Sudan as a whole. Sure. So if Darfur represented a kind of um, region on the western margins of central power, South Sudan represented a region historically on the margins of state power to the south, right? Um, what's really interesting about South Sudan is that during the colonial period, despite the fact that Sudan was one administrative colony, it was really ruled as two spheres, one in the north, one in the south. Um, and so when Sudan became independent in 1956, there were lots of people in the south who were like, we didn't necessarily want to be um, joined with um, people in northern Sudan. So there were two civil wars fought between South and North Sudan, um, the first from 1955 until 72, and then from 1983 all the way until 2005. Um, and South Sudan, um, right, secedes in 2011. Um, but this boded very badly for Sudan because in the 1970s, it was found that South Sudan basically sits upon an ocean of oil. Mm. 
And so South Sudan became very important to the entire Sudan for its oil riches, right? Um, oil would be extracted and then piped up north and then through the Port Sudan, Red Sea port to, you know, pl places as far off as China, right? Um, and so when South Sudan seceded, it took its oil wealth with it, right? And so since 2011 and since South Sudan's secession, Sudan's economy um, has really felt the sting, right, of this deprivation, um, a deprivation that has also been kind of increased by international sanctions and drought, um, the COVID-19 crisis, right, which, you know, um, from an economic perspective, you know, just made um, the humanitarian situation in Sudan worse. Um, so that's just a long-winded way of saying that um, when South Sudan seceded in 2011, in some ways, Sudan's geopolitical situation became even more precarious. Mm -hmm. um, now, it does behoove South Sudan to have good relations with the Sudan, um, not only because it shares a hundreds miles long border, um, but also because you have a lot of South Sudanese who live in Sudan proper, right? Um, I think one recent estimate was like 800,000 people, <laughs> right? So um, it still behooves South Sudan to have kind of a warm um, relationship with the Sudan so that it can still pump out whatever oil it does have, you know, up through Port Sudan. Um, but from an economic perspective, it was very, very damaging to Sudan's economy. And in some ways, right, some have argued or one could argue kind of was one of the main ingredients for why um, um, Omar al-Bashir um, was actually toppled um, in 2019. And we'll, and we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, for our audience, uh, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Professor Christopher Townsell, and we're discussing the situation in Sudan. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at uh, www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, Chris, before we press on and, and talk a little bit about uh, the toppling of Omar al-Bashir, um, you had mentioned that there, even as as huge of an area as Sudan was, when it gained independence, you actually had these two regions of the, of the country. Uh, from Khartoum North, uh, which is essentially where Sudan is today, were they more connected to the British-influenced Egyptian government, and the South Sudan Sudanese were more connected maybe to the British-influenced Kenyan government? Is that kind of how the split worked? Exactly. Yes. So during the colonial period, um, the British administration really headquartered itself in the north, in Khartoum, Umdurman, and Khartoum North, which is these this kind of three city metropolis um, located at the confluence of the Blue and White N N Niles. Um, because North Sudan has a very thousands long or centuries long history of um, Arab and Islamic culture, it had certain historic ties, certainly to Egypt up north um, and people like Jamal Abdel Nasser, right? And those who were kind of, you know, pan Arabists um, wanted to, to include Sudan in the fold. 
Um, there was actually very wide debate um, after World War II about whether Sudan should be joined to an independent Egypt. So you had two contingents, some who said, no, Sudan should be its own country, completely independent and sovereign. And others said Sudan should be free from British colonial rule, but should be joined to its historic, you know, kin, if you will, up north in Egypt. Um, so down south, though, right in South Sudan, which is hundreds of miles south of Khartoum um, and is often kind of considered, quote unquote, black and African. Right. Um, these are problematic terms if we consider the fact that, you know, you have black and African people in the north as well. Um, but yes, it was briefly thought that South Sudan would join a kind of British East African federation with countries like um, Kenya and Uganda. Um, but this ultimately did not happen, right? Um, so Sudan, for you listeners out there, is one of those very unique examples in world history in that before it becomes independent, right, on January the 1st, 1956, it's already embroiled in a civil war. So it's civil war technically predates when it actually becomes an internationally recognized country, right? Um, so there is a long history of political um, conflict in the Sudan. Um, and I think most parties would say that South Sudan's ultimately uh, seceding in 2011 was a good thing if one considers the fact that the two regions had been in military conflict for the better part of five decades. Right. Yeah, that's good um, Yeah. Uh, so what led to the toppling of longtime President Omar al-Bashir, uh, who led Sudan for, what, 30 years, something like that? 30 years, yeah. Um, and it's weird because, so Omar al-Bashir comes to power on June the 30th, 1989, through a coup. Right. Um, June the 30th is an important date, much less so because it's my birthday. <laughs> and so um, I turned two the same day that Omar al-Bashir became the president of the Sudan. Right. Um, and so he comes to power. Right. Um, but shortly after he comes to power, Sudan begins to suffer international isolation. Right. Because someone happened to live in his borders who became kind of public enemy number one in the U.S. And this was Osama bin Laden. So bin Laden actually maintained a residence in the Sudan for a few years, um, I think from 1991 until 96 um, in Sudan. Um, and he lived in Sudan during the first World Trade Center attack, which occurred in 1993. Um, and so because the U.S., right, believed that um, the Bashir regime was, in essence, harboring um, Osama bin Laden, right, it begins to um, experience a, a series of sanctions um, levied by President Bill Clinton, right? Um, then if you fast forward until 2001, right, um, and, you know, President Bush declares after the World Trade Center attacks and the 
Pentagon as well, right? Um, that, you know, there is an, an axis of evil. And basically, if you're not with us, then you're against us, right? Um, that combined with the Darfur genocide and the humanitarian disaster and Sudan becomes even more of a pariah state, right? And so it's in 2009, right, which at this point, Bashir has just been in power for 20 years, that he is officially indicted by the International Criminal Court for the Darfur genocide, right? So by the time we fast forward to December 2018, right, Bashir has been in power for almost 30 years, right? The country is still reeling from the loss of South Sudan, Um and al-Bashir has the audacity, right, to raise the price of bread, right? <laughs> and as you said, right, if water is foundational, right, to life, <laughs> right, um, sometimes what brings down really mighty figures are things that are seemingly small, right? One can trace his, like, the immediate context for his fall to his raising the price of bread, Right. And an economic crisis that also led to fuel and cash shortages. So there were protests, right? Thousands of demonstrators in the streets. Um, there's clashes between soldiers trying to protect the protesters and, you know, Bashir cronies who are trying to disperse them. Um, there is a very, um, sorted scene in which over a hundred protesters are killed, right? And so finally in April 2019, he is toppled by the army, right? Um, and consultations are made to kind of form an interim transitional council. Um, so that's kind of the context there um, for kind of why he fell. Um, you know, some deservedly so would might be confused right okay so you know this longtime dictator falls in 2019 why hasn't there been a kind of peaceful transition you know to um democratic rule right isn't that what the people kind of deposed him for in the first place um the answer to that question is right there was an agreed to process <laughs> right um there was a plan basically to have a three-year period of a kind of joint military and civilian um, um, kind of interim government, right? But in October of 2021, two years into this three-year period, one of the main protagonists in today's events, um, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, basically short-circuited the process by staging his own coup, right? And so for the last few months, um, Burhan has been in power. So um, the process, or there was a process in place to have free and fair elections this year, um, but that process was short-circuited by um, General Abdel Fattah Burhan. Uh, so, uh, Professor Christopher Townsend, we're actually going to take just a, 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 about a 45-second uh, commercial break to recognize our sponsor, and then we'll come back and we'll talk more about uh, the current strife that has erupted in uh, Sudan. We'll be right back. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. 
Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. And we are back here at National Security This Week with our guest, Professor Christopher Townsell from the University of Washington in Seattle. And we're talking about Sudan today. Uh, so, uh, Professor Townsell, we were just talking about the fact that uh, uh, deposed President Omar al-Bashir, who came to power in his own coup uh, 30-some years ago, was, was uh, ousted in a coup himself. And then we just had another coup not too long ago. Uh, so we all know from the news that Sudan is in a civil war today. What was the catalyst specifically for the for the start of the civil war that is happening uh, around uh, Sudan, uh, principally, I think, around Khartoum, but other places as well? It's spread widely across Sudan. What, who are the main antagonists in this fight? Absolutely. So the two main antagonists are General Abdel Fattah Burhan, again, who is the military man that staged his own coup in 2021, right? And the Rapid Support Forces, which is a paramilitary organization led by General Mohamed Degalo, or who is colloquially known as Hameti. And Hameti is the name that um, I will use during the duration um, of the conversation. Okay. So who are these men, right? Dagalo is a career soldier, right? He's been in the Sudanese army for decades, right? Um, one could say was kind of could have chosen the path of kind of fading into retirement, <laughs> right? And living out the rest of his days, he has decided not to do that, right? Um, but then there is this other figure of Hameti, right? Who in an interesting way is connected to the Darfur genocide that many of the listeners might be familiar with. Um, and Hameti is connected because he was one of the principal leaders in the Janjaweed militia that worked on behalf of the former Bashir state to basically squash unrest, um, anti-government unrest in Darfur, right? So Hameti was, you know, to, for lack of a better term, the one that got down and dirty, right, into the actual conduct of the atrocities itself, right? We don't, you know, believe that Bashir himself actually, you know, directly oversaw killing, right? We know that Hameti would have been the one on the ground, right? Um, yeah, so these are the two men that are kind of currently waged in this power struggle, right? Um, what's interesting about Hameti, though, right, is that um, Hameti is at the head of this unit known as the Rapid Support Forces, which is basically uh, genealogically tied to the Janjaweed. So the Janjaweed become kind of somewhat incorporated or adopted into um Bashir's military kind of complex in, I believe, 2013, right? Um, but the rapid support forces is huge, right? 
it's a paramilitary organization, but it's got over a hundred thousand people, right? Um, it's a very powerful wing. And so after Bashir was deposed in 2019, right, one of the kind of um um issues that was supposed to be settled in the run-up to a free and fair election was how is the rapid support forces led by Hameti going to be incorporated into the army, right? Um, and there was disagreement between Al-Burhan, right, the kind of uh, de facto leader of the country, and Hameti about this, right? Hameti wanted a very long period of transition, 10 years, right? Which is really passing the bug down, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. right? Burham was like, oh, I'm thinking maybe two or three years, right? Um, and so Hameti, who wanted to cling to power, right? And, you know, um, well, so yeah, um, Hameti, who basically wanted to cling to power, Burham, who wants to establish his own hegemony, right? Um, and so this is really the kind of principal point of conflict. Um, this kind of, um, yeah, this conflict over power, right? And I think it's really important for people out there to uh, understand that this is not a kind of deep philosophical ideological struggle, right? This is not a conflict between people who have two different ideas for how the state should run, right? Um, or a different idea of kind of, you know, human rights, um, Sudanese sovereignty, what Sudan's foreign policy should look like, you know, what checks and balances should look like. I have really equated what's going on in Sudan right now to the the well the well-known African proverb of, when elephants fight, the grass gets trampled. I think that this conflict really boils down to two men who are very wealthy, who have over 100,000 soldiers at their disposal, right? Have planes and surface-to-air missiles and the kind of accoutrement, right, um, of warfare and who both want to have power, Um and so when you have kind of um, megalomaniacal figures <laughs> like that with the kind of instruments of warfare at their disposal, um, we see what can happen, right? Um, and, you know, civilians get killed, right? People go hungry, people starve, um, and it's needless, right? It's needless in the truest sense, right? Because... Um, this did not have to happen, right? This yeah. was not um, something that was inevitable, right? Some would say, well, anytime someone who's in power for 30 years is removed from power, you're going to have people kind of racing to fill that vacuum, right? So some might say, well, you know, in some ways this was expected, right? Um, but... <laughs> because of the will of these Sudanese people and the fact that they've never actually had their will really um, expressed from an electoral politics standpoint, um, Sudan has experienced a host of coups since 1956, right? Um, I think the only country 
in Africa that's experienced more coups is Burkina Faso. Um, <laughs> on, so yeah. So it's my understanding that uh, that Hamedi uh, Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo. Uh, leading the rapid support forces, which is the outgrowth of the, of the old Janjaweed uh, uh, militia, that this sort of this group, the rapid support forces, they're they're almost like a, to a certain extent, they're kind of like a private military contractor, like we think of the Wagner Group or or whatnot, because uh, he's actually struck deals with the United Arab Emirates and with Saudi Arabia. He sent forces on behalf of Saudi Arabia to fight in Yemen. Uh, from these rapid support forces. So there's this, uh, it's just kind of a crazy situation there that uh, how Hamedi has control over this 100,000 troops, well-armed, uh, that he farms out uh, on contract for suppression of <laughs> of other, uh, you know, political movements and whatnot. And, and he's even in control of, uh, of some of the gold mines and, and uh, other elements of a transnational business empire in Sudan. It's just, it's just madness. It's madness how this whole thing has, uh, has come to be. And I think what is, you know, a part of the madness, right, is that Hameti has accrued an insane amount of wealth. Yeah. Right. Probably, um, probably a billionaire, somewhere. right? Might be a billionaire. Exactly, right? And so I, I think when, you know, many of us in this country think about a billionaire, we might think of someone in, you know, a Hugo Boss suit sitting <laughs> in a conference room, right, in Wall Street or Seattle or some, you know, oil tycoon or, you know, tech whiz in Palo Alto, California, right? Hameti is a billionaire, right? And he's a billionaire for multiple reasons, right? But one is the fact that um, kind of in recent years, um, gold was actually found in the Sudan, right? And so you've got this country on one hand struggling with drought and, um, you know, famines and things of that nature. But then this very still to this day, right, going back a thousand years, of course, but to this day, gold still matters, right? And so after gold is found, right, um, both Hameti and Burhan scramble to try to use their armed forces to control these gold mines, right? Um, and so to your point, right, um, Hameti, perhaps in an attempt to establish credibility within the Arab world, right, um, sends forces to help the UAE, right? Um, the UAE has been a trading partner um, with Hameti, right? Um, it's obviously in Saudi Arabia's interest to have, you know, good r relations with the Sudan in part because, you know, if Saudi Arabia is the strongest power on the east side of the Red Sea, the Sudan, you know, um, is also very important to stability on the Red Sea as well, right? Yeah. But as you mentioned, right, the the Wagner Group and the, you know, the Putin state, we'll just um, call it, right, um, has been very invested in working with Hameti in order to fund its own military operations, right? Um, and so Hameti in some ways, I think, kind of bucks the uh, traditional stereotype of the African warlord, 
right? This very kind of uncritical term that, that I think is often used of people who, you know, are kind of just insane, bloodthirsty, you know, want to control and kind of Idi don't have a... <laughs> like exactly, yeah. right? Um, Hameti is a savvy 21st century warlord, right? Someone who during the outbreak of conflict um, a few weeks ago takes to Facebook, right? Someone who has traveled to Moscow, right? Um, and so this is someone who is a warlord who is also you know, a somewhat experienced, right, if not effective statesman, right, um, someone who still kind of from from a political standpoint, I think, is also kind of trying to frame himself as someone who is on the margins, yeah. right? Yeah. Someone who is like, I'm not, you know, one of the traditional cartoon elites that's been oppressing people, in Darfur, I am an outsider, right? He, and I think we in this country are very familiar with, you know, the history of politicians going back to, you know, folks like Andrew Jackson, right, who have tried to kind of use this outsider's status to get into the corridors of power. He's 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 a bit of a populist, a Sudanese populist. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Right. A Sudanese populist who has never participated in an election a day in his life, but who is a billionaire with 100,000 men at his disposal, who has been, you know, um, curried by Moscow, right? Um, and who now folks like the U.S., you know, are at the bare minimum having to take seriously. Yeah. And there is that that, that connection that you mentioned between uh uh, Hemeti and and his uh, rapid support forces and the Wagner group. I, I, we could we could spend an hour just on that one topic. Uh, so, Professor Townsend, we only have about uh, twenty minutes left in the show. I told you before we came on the air, the the hour goes by just like that. There are a number of important questions that I want to get to. I'm going to ask you if you could maybe give us uh, two to three minute answers on some of these. Does does either side in this civil war have an advantage right now? And are the international community's efforts to get the warring factions to the negotiating table, are they working at all, or are they totally in vain right now until one side has a bigger uh, an advantage? Great questions. Um, so in terms of which side or if a side kind of has an advantage right now, um, I think both sides have their own advantage, right? Um, at the moment that we're talking right now, um, the rapid support forces controlled by Hameti control most of Khartoum, okay? And one could argue that whoever controls, you know, the largest, most populous city um, and the city with the most kind of governmental infrastructure, um, that is a very important advantage, right? And it's no coincidence that the most vicious fighting has occurred in and around Khartoum, right? And the RSF has an advantage because it maintains a base of power in Darfur, right? Hmm. So it not only controls the country's major metropolis, but also the historically restive um, region in Darfur. However, there are advantages that Burhan and the Sudanese military have, right, over the rapid support forces, 
And one is that the rapid support forces does not have an air force, right? The Sudanese army does, right? Now, the RSF does have kind of anti-aircraft um, technology, but doesn't actually have an air force, right? And importantly, the Sudanese army has the Egyptians on its side, ah, right? Okay. Um, e- yeah. Um, Egypt is um, very keen to have a um or has kind of historically sided with Burhan um <clears throat> excuse me um because of course Egypt is run by its own military coup <laughs> leader yeah, um, and yeah, Al Sisi right yeah. exactly right um but then one could say well you know Burhan you've got Egypt on your side we've got Russia on our side right so that's just to say right now, I don't think that one side has a kind of clear cut um, advantage. But I would say that so long as this war continues, the more Hameti remains at least in the know. Right um, now, in terms of the international community's efforts right, to get the warring factions um, to the negotiating table. Right. We know that negotiations have been ongoing for several weeks um, across the Red Sea in Saudi Arabia, right? And that there is a joint U.S.-Saudi um, project, right, to bring a hiatus to the conflict, right? Um, just just, to, know just that... to get a simple ceasefire in place from a humanitarian perspective even uh, exactly. would, would be a major right. victory right now. Exactly. Um, and so last week there was major headway in the fact that for the first time the U.S., leveled sanctions against both Hameti and Burhan um, in an effort to kind of, you know, offer some punitive action to the kind of um, the uh, humanitarian crisis that has been precipitated by the conflict. Um, But one could say, just being completely real, you know, this question of, is this really working? And are the attempts at peace in vain um i think that so long as there is a kind of hyper focus on a ceasefire and not a lasting peace i think that that's the really big question right i think any reasonable minded person would say yes the most important thing is humanitarian aid right but there's a difference between trying to negotiate you know access to humanitarian aid and actually try to bring peace, <laughs> right, between the two warring parties. So um, it looks like the U- U.S. right now is concentrating on short-term solutions, which are on one hand important, but are still short-term, not, sure. you know, a long-term. Uh, you mentioned uh, Egypt seems to be siding with uh, with Burhan and uh, Russia <laughs> through the Wagner Group a little more mm-hmm. with uh, Hamedi. Do you see any of the other countries on the periphery uh, taking sides in this uh, conflict uh, directly? And maybe we keep it tight a couple minutes here. Sure. Yeah. Um, So the country that I'll really focus on is Saudi Arabia, right? An energy-rich power, right? Um, Obviously very wealthy um, that has tried to shape events in Sudan since Bashir's um, toppling um, in 2019, right? Um, Saudi Arabia, you know, after the explosion of conflict in 2023, 
um, committed to providing $100 million worth of humanitarian aid to the Sudan, right? Um, and it, you know, immediately kind of raised its hand and said, look, we will host the ceasefire talks, right? Um, some, some, I guess, analysts have said that Saudi Arabia has nothing to gain from instability in Sudan, right? And so it is very well within its interest to avoid a refugee crisis and to create potentially new opportunities for armed groups. But then there's the UAE as well, right, um, which gets gold and oil from Sudan. So whoever ends up in power, whether it's Hameti or Burhan, the UAE wants to make sure that, you know, it kind of keeps its, um, you know, um, pipeline, if you will, of material resources from the Sudan in play, right? Um, so it will be very interesting, right? Um, I don't see Saudi Arabia trying to, you know, jump in and control the Sudan. Um, but I do think that Saudi Arabia is really trying to leverage its position, right, as the major country in the Arab world, right? Um and Saudi Arabia is trying to clean up its own image after its role in the war in Yemen, right? Yeah, so in yeah. some ways, there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of certain, there is a self-interested project in play of, you know, trying to appear better and maybe take attention away from its own human rights, um, you know, questionable policies, right, by saying, well, look, we're helping to solve this problem in Sudan, right? We can't be that bad, right? So, yeah, the Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman in, in Saudi Arabia has has really turned the corner on so many different uh, aspects of uh, the role that Saudi Arabia is playing in the overall region. Uh, let me ask you this: Are there any countries on the periphery of Sudan who benefit from Sudan being in this crisis mode? Ethiopia, perhaps. I know there's been some strife. Uh, between Ethiopia and Sudan over the Ethiopian, uh, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, which is you know damming up the Blue Nile River, uh, mm-hmm. which is the most important feeder into the the main Nile that flows north from Khartoum through uh, all the way up to the Mediterranean. It, does Ethiopia benefit from uh, Sudan being in strife? <laughs> yeah, this is what's tough, right? Because on one hand, um, because of the massive refugee crisis that this conflict has spurred, right. Um, you know, countries like South Sudan, Ethiopia, Egypt, um, and Chad, right, do not want to have hundreds of thousands of refugees in their country that they cannot really take care of, right? On the other hand, for Ethiopia, right, and its Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, which, you know, purportedly can have an amazing hydroelectric impact on the country, right? Ethiopia may see this as an opportunity, right, to um, potentially have a regime in power in the Sudan that is more amenable, if you will, (laughs) right, to this dam operating at full capacity, right? Um, And so, however, we know that Ethiopia has also been involved in its own civil conflict, right? The, you know, Tigray people's Right. And so, um, in some sense, Ethiopia emerging from its own civil conflict, 
would rather not have an enormous civil conflict exploding right next door, right? Um, but then also Ethiopia would love to have a Sudanese regime that is more friendly so that the Egyptians, right, which remain the most populous country on the Nile, um, can be deterred, right? So um, I think certainly... Um, Ethiopia. And then there's also the question of Libya, right? Right. right. <laughs> um, which had its own revolution a few years ago that hasn't gone that well since. Um, so, yeah. So uh, on this show, we, we generally try to take a look at uh, things that are happening around the world through, you know, quote unquote, American lens. Uh, it's a show, mm -hmm. a show about national security. Why, sure. why is the situation in Sudan important to American national security interests? And, and why should the guy who uh, who owns his own plumbing company or the restaurant owner down the street care about the outcome of this civil war in Sudan? Now, you, know, you published uh, a piece uh, back in late April called uh, Sudan's Plunge into Chaos Has Geopolitical Implications Near and Far, Including for U.S. Strategic Goals. Uh, so what do you have to say? Why, why is this uh, conflict important? In a word... Ukraine. Yep. Right. <laughs> the plumber may live in a town where when he's driving to work or when he's going into that house to work on a septic tank, that house has a Ukraine flag or a car with a Ukraine bumper sticker on the bumper. Right. Sudan is very important because it is, some have argued, the economic lifeline for the Russian war effort in Ukraine. Right. So long as Russia is able to access and tap Sudan's gold. Right. And to have very wealthy friends like Hameti. Right. The impact of the international sanctions that have been directed against Russia as a result of its um, uh, invasion of Ukraine. Right. Russia has been able to insulate itself from the economic impact of those sanctions by having international lifelines like the Sudan, right? So there is a way in which Russia's incursions west into the European mainland are directly connected to goings-on in the Sudan. So that's one. But then two, right, there's always the economics um, factor, right? So... We know, I think it was last year, right, that the Suez Canal briefly had a kind of glut. Um, and, you know, 20% or between 12 to 20% of global trade still goes through the Suez Canal, right? So if there's a problem on the Red Sea, it is possible that Joe the plumber will feel that at the grocery store, right? Yeah, because yeah. it's going to affect the supply of goods that ultimately get into this country and economics what economics 101 as the supply goes down right the demand and the cost might go up right yeah um so but the main thing is you ukraine right ukraine 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 um i think is the kind of main reason why not why the sudan quote unquote matters, but from a U.S. standpoint. Um, and then last but not least, right, we're going into an election year, right? And with the withdrawal in Af 
Afghanistan that was a kind of public like, ooh, that doesn't look that great, right? Um, this is going to be one of the foreign policy issues, perhaps, that comes up between presidential candidates, right, in terms sure. of what should the U.S.'s role in the world be, right? Do we still have the trust and the kind of um, political capital, right, at world negotiating tables, right? Are we still the leaders of the free world, right? Are we capable of bringing people like Burhan and Hameti to peace, right? So it would look amazing, right, for people in the current administration if this could be resolved before November 2024 because it would be a huge foreign policy win. Conversely, if things continue to deteriorate, it's going to bring a lot of questions, right, into, you know, how much influence does the U.S. actually have on the continent, right? Do people really take the U.S. seriously, right? Um, so... I yeah. think that those are three reasons why the Sudan um, should matter to people in this country. And that and that's a great point. And I would broaden it out even uh, to a bigger geopolitical contest that's taking place, and that's the one between the U.S. and China. If the U.S. is committing resources to try and solve yet another crisis in the Middle East, uh, even in partnership with Saudi Arabia— uh, China wins because they're not expending much in the way of resources on this effort at all right now. Uh, they have their base in uh, in Djibouti. They have uh, the Chinese have built a, clearly a, a working relationship uh, between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, you know, brokered a rapprochement between them. China has been making investments in Egypt and other places around the Middle East. Uh, this is a very interesting situation in this competition between the United States and China. Uh, for sort of global influence. So you, you pointed that out really well. So, Professor Townsend, we only have about three minutes left. I always like to give my guests uh, the last word. What final thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners regarding the situation in, in Sudan? Absolutely. My final thought, my one final thought, is that I encourage, I implore, I beseech people who have listened to this conversation to not buy into the pathology of African chaos, right? What's going on in the Sudan is not an example of people not, quote unquote, wanting democracy or not having the capacity to build one, right? This is about two individuals at the end of the day, right? And so please continue to learn as much as you can about what is going on and use a multitude of resources, right? There are a lot of trustworthy news outlets out there, right? This podcast, right? This um, this show, I think, is a trustworthy source, <laughs> right? Um, I, I like to do think not... so. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So it's like, do not buy into the kind of easier temptation to just dismiss this as, oh, it's just another example in a long line of, you know, coups and violence and tragedy on the continent. No. This did not have to happen, and this should not be lost on us, right? Um, and that we, in this day and age with radio and social media, and still that traditional means of reaching out to your congressperson, <laughs> right, to say, what are you doing, right, as my representative in D.C. to bring this tragedy to an end? 
that still matters. Um, so that would be my final word. Yeah, that's 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 a great point. And I and I've been watching a lot of the different uh, news channel coverages of what's been happening in Sudan. And, and when they've been able to get news crews into Khartoum, for instance, and they're talking to just the average citizen who is now without a reliable food supply, clean water. There's really no medical care available right now. Uh, you, you can tell everybody there wants a stable uh, a, you know, a stable government, an effective uh, functioning economy. They just want to live, right? They just want to live their lives. A- and they're being uh, sort of consumed by this uh, fight between these two uh, m- megalomaniacs, <laughs> as, as I think you, you said. Yeah. So uh, we're going to have to kind of start wrapping up there. Professor Christopher Townsell, Interim Director of the African Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle, thank you for joining us today. Are there any resources that you would recommend to our listeners they can learn more about Sudan? Uh, or, or tell us a little bit about where we can find your books. Sure. Um, so you can find my book at at, at Amazon.com for sure. Um, but in terms of resources about the Sudan, the news website, The Conversation, mm. so literally theconversation.com, outstanding, accessible content on what's going on in the Sudan. I would also suggest people uh, tap into Al Jazeera. Uh, the English language version yes, of Al Jazeera yes. is, is excellent coverage of what's happening in Sudan right now. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Well, that's it. So, C- Professor Christopher Townsell, thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Thank you, John. Have a good one. And, folks, that closes this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today here on KYMN Radio. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. A couple of quick notes uh, to share before we close out the show. Uh, For those of you who are interested, tomorrow, June 8th, is World Oceans Day. If you happen to think of it uh, when you're next on a computer or have your smartphone in hand, look it up, World Oceans Day. The world's oceans are vitally important for life on our planet. Humanity would be well served by doing far more to protect the seas. Somewhere between 50 and 75% of the oxygen we breathe is created by marine plants. So it's clearly in our best interest as a species to ensure the oceans continue to produce the oxygen we breathe. Finally, you may know I co-author national security thrillers with my fellow Annapolis graduate, David Bruns. Our most recent novel, Threat Axis, which launched on April 11th, uh, has already pushed beyond 500 reviews on Amazon with an average score of a 4.6 out of 5. David and I are absolutely thrilled our readers are enjoying this story. We'll be submitting the manuscript for our ninth novel at the end of this month. That book, Covert Action, will launch in early 2024. In the meantime, you can find all our books at David's website. That's www.davidbruns.com. And that'll do it for this week's show. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series. Hogan Brothers would like to say congratulations.